Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is David Litt. At age 24, David became one of the youngest speechwriters in White House history, rising to President Obama's senior staff. Along with penning remarks on issues from immigration to criminal justice reform, Litt served as the president's go-to comedy writer. Taking the lead on the White House Correspondent's dinner speech, he was responsible for some of President Obama's most memorable comedic moments, such as Keegan Michael Kay's appearance as Luther, Obama's anger translator. In his new memoir, Thanks Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years, he explores the triumphant highs, demoralizing lows, and hilarious surprises of life in the world's most high-stakes office building. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you David Litt. David, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. So you get a job in the Obama White House. You're 24, right? When you get the job? That's right. Do you feel like after a White House job at that age, like the rest of life is like living posthumously? <laughs> is it, well, do, do you peak it like that? <laughs> pos- posthumously is pretty intense. Um, I, I did. I remember I had uh, breakfast with someone once. Somebody works in, in entertainment, a comedian. And he was like, yeah, you're like uh, you're like a quarterback who peaked in high school. And I was like, oh, thank you. Um, but I think there was sort of a point to that. I the, the way that I think about the experience that I had, I think it's pretty unlikely I will work in the White House again or for a president again. But the strange thing about it and, and for many of my colleagues, not just for me, is that that was the first chapter of our careers. For a lot of people, a White House job or or at least the White House job you write a book about is the climactic chapter of your career. And so that is um, something I, I suppose I do need to figure out, but it's also something that I thought was an interesting and kind of different um, angle, a different version of public service that we don't always hear about is what is it like to be the young person in that very intense place? And you were not somebody right before this who is necessarily like a real politico. I mean, you weren't you were not Alex Keaton in like family ties, like, you know, every day, like dreaming, like I'm going to someday be this politico. I mean, you were this had to do right with your connection to Barack Obama. That's right. I started the my senior year of college in 2008. Not exactly sure what I wanted to do. I mean, before that, I wanted to be in comedy. I had done stand up comedy when I was in high school. I did uh, improv in college. I was an intern at The Onion in 2007. And then um, one of the things I write about in in my book is about how I sort of decided I didn't want to work for The Onion, mostly because I wasn't very good at it. And then I ended up not being sure what I wanted to do. I applied to join the CIA. That didn't go well. And in the end, why didn't that go well? Were they like, look, (laughs) we just don't think like we don't picture you with a piano wire, you know? Well, so, so, so what happened actually was I was. On, in my interview with the CIA, and I at the time thought, well, I have taken some uh, Chinese language classes, and I'm majoring in history, so I would probably be the right guy to get bin Laden. Um, I was pretty certain that that's how that worked. And what happened was I was uh, I spoke to the interviewer who said, um, great, we're so excited to talk to you. Just so we know, have you used any illegal substances in the last 12 calendar months? And I said, well, 
yeah, actually I have. I smoked weed two months before. It was my 21st birthday party. And I thought about lying to the CIA because maybe that was the test, you know, but uh, <laughs> I decided it probably wasn't worth it. Like I was like, on one hand, maybe I'm passing a test. On the other hand, maybe these people could kill me. So I'm just going to tell them the truth. And I remember the guy, the guy who was interviewing me on the phone said, well, you know, we like people who break the rules, but um, actually there's a new law in Congress where if you've uh, if you've been doing any illegal substances whatsoever in the last 12 months, we can't even talk to you. Looking back on it, I have no idea if he was telling the truth or not. Um, you know, again, it's, it's quite possible he was lying to me. If so, the fact that I then immediately just believed him and said, all right, well, thank you. It's probably another sign why I shouldn't have worked for the CIA. But um, <laughs> that seems like but, it's going to weed out a lot of candidates. Literally, I mean, I, I forgive, the, forgive the wording, but weed out. But like there's a lot of people that would fall into that demographic. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine recruiting on college campuses is harder, although maybe it is, you know, the it could just be the people who have the guts to say, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Marijuana, never heard of it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they're they're the ones who are made cut out for the, for agent for the agency. I don't know. But I was so I was kind of casting about for something to do. Uh, at with my life in 2008. And I saw uh, Barack Obama, who was then a candidate, speak on January 3rd, 2008. He had just won the Iowa caucuses. And he I, I wasn't planning on watching his speech. I was on a plane and there was a little plane TV in the seat back in front of me and I was scrolling through it and nothing was good on any of the ESPN. So I ended up on CNN and Barack Obama was talking. And within minutes, uh, maybe even seconds of watching that speech, I just instantly was like, okay, whatever this guy is doing, I want to be part of that. Um, and I remember specifically, he, he looked at the organizers, the people my age in the crowd, and he said, you represent that most American of ideals faced with impossible odds. People who love this country can change it. And in that moment, I was like, okay, he's talking to me. And I, the, the interesting thing, of course, was that millions of people around the country were like, oh, he's talking to me. So I, I, I think it was one of those moments when, um, you know, and a great political figure can do this. They can speak to millions of individuals simultaneously. And I just was lucky enough to be watching CNN when that happened. Did you ever get to tell him that story? You know, I never did, actually. Um, I always like thought about maybe there'll be a good time to, you know, uh, to tell him. But I imagine if everybody who worked for President Obama was, uh, you know, got five or ten minutes to tell him how much he meant to them. Uh, it would be a little bit um, – he would have a, a lot of time on his schedule that would be better spent doing other things. So uh, I did write the book. <laughs> <laughs> and you, know, you said that you had an interest in comedy. Do you – I mean I, I, like early on, you know, that that you were doing it in high school. I, I just watched Jerry Seinfeld's special and, and he was on Colbert and he said you know, he remembered the first time he thought he was really funny. It was that bit where he goes, you know, left-handed – you know, people have this kind of the self-image because everything we're left out. You know, left, this like mm, there's yeah. all these sort of left is like um, associated so negatively. And he's like, at that point, that bit, I knew I had it. Huh. Was there a bit a moment where you knew you had it? Like, where you're doing stand up or you wrote a joke and you were like, yes, yeah, okay, I could do this. No, I think um, it's funny you talk about stand up. Most of the stand up I did was when I was 15 or, or so in high school. And I was I think I was pretty good for a 15 year old, but I was not um, sort of thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm clearly a prodigy at this. Uh, and then let's see. And, you know, I, when I was writing for 
President Obama. No, there was never a moment where I was like, oh, I'm amazing at this. Uh, a lot of what I write about in my book is the feeling of sort of constantly challenging yourself to do something more difficult. But then also that comes with wondering, like, am I have I kind of Peter principled myself out? You know, uh, am I now finally um, at the point where every, you know, like the Roadrunner Wiley Coyote thing where they run off where Wiley Coyote like runs off the cliff and then looks down and like, you know, that's the moment you're like, if I finally gone off that cliff. But I do think one of the nice things was because I was there for four and a half, five years. By the end, there were certain things that I never would have imagined doing that became fairly regular. So when the correspondence dinners, these these joke monologues rolled around saying, oh, OK, we're going to get together and we're going to write jokes and it's probably going to go well, even if it's not going to feel good. And, you know, it's, even if it's going to be dicey at times, um, that was a pretty cool feeling. Is that like the highlight of your year when you're a speechwriter for the president, like the correspondence dinner? I mean, is that like is that of like like um, the Super Bowl, like social events? <laughs> uh, it depends on who you are. So the correspondence dinner for me was, was a highlight of my year because I was kind of our, our token funny person from uh, about 2012 to about 2015. And so that was my that was the biggest speech I sort of regularly worked on in a year. Um, the other, you know, there were about eight of us and different people had different things that they really focused on. Um, and of course, you know, I worked for the chief speechwriter. So John Favreau in the first term and Cody Keenan in the second term. And for them, you know, their highlight, their big night of the year would have been the State of the Union. I mean, there were far bigger presidential speeches. It just so happened that for me, this was kind of my um, this, this was my Super Bowl in a way, just because I knew that this this was a big high profile speech I was going to get assigned that came up every year. A lot of the time for speechwriters, the biggest moments aren't the ones you can predict because something happens in the world or there's this right combination of the, the president and the moment and the audience. But uh, er, there are a few things that appear on the calendar every year. Were you you're you're engaged Correct. Yes, that's right. Did you know your fiance when you got the before you had the White House job? No, we met um, in 2011. So I got the job in March of 2011, and we met in November 2011. And in the book, I have a I sort of talk about the perils of uh, online dating while working at the White House because we met on OkCupid, and uh, OkCupid works where you have to answer tons of questions and then they try to match you with people who have similar answers or some algorithm, except I didn't want to answer any personal questions because it was election season and you never know. You know, I mean, it, it, it's paranoid, but also true. The, um, the size of the kind of machine that would go after democratic operatives is pretty big. And, um, so I was, a, it was this matter of kind of like, well, you know, I want to fill out a profile, but I don't want to let anyone know anything about me, which is a little contradictory. And so I, I'm amazed uh, that you, you, you were vulnerable enough to say, okay, Cupid. I mean, that, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it is a free site though. Right. So, I mean, that's, you know, yeah, no, it's, uh, well, I started doing online dating cause I was like, uh, sometime that year basically realized like friends of mine who I would consider extremely dateable, like more dateable than me are doing it. So like, am I really going to be that precious? And, um, and the funny thing was the, one of the very first OkCupid dates I went on was with someone who was similarly vague and also said that she was doing online dating, partly because she didn't want to just meet people at work. And we met up for a drink and it turned out that not only did we both work in the white house, 
we both worked in the communications office and on the same floor of our big office building. We just hadn't met each other yet, um, which would have been like a very nice meet cute story if we had really hit it off. But, you know, it was it was it was a perfectly fine date, but there was no second date. And so and you've got to be thinking, it was just right? super awkward. It isn't the, isn't like the whole draw to like, when do I drop that I work at the White House? Like, I mean, and then so when you drop that and meet, oh, it's like, I mean, it kind of takes a, a away little the bit, you know, um, this is uh, something I, I wanted to write about because I felt like certainly I was like, maybe this is going to be my moment. Like, I'm going to be a rock star. And I think for people who already were inclined to be rock stars, being able to drop like, oh, I work at the White House was very effective uh, in terms of getting dates. But for me, it was like basically the same as things had always been. So, you know, I think it was um, if you already had game working at the White House was very helpful, um, regardless of your gender. But I think if you uh, like me were kind of, you know, not struggling, but average, distinctly average. Um, right you know, in the meaty part of the curve. <laughs> yeah, something like that. No, I think that um, you working in the White House was uh, it, it was not quite like, um, you know, suddenly getting whatever uh, playing tight end for the Patriots or some uh, some job where you're like, oh, this is going to be great for my dating life. <laughs> it's interesting because you do. I mean, your memoir is not a story of like um, you don't tell it in the tone of human triumph. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, you, you really loved your time, but you talk about times where you didn't say the right thing, where you felt embarrassed, where you felt like, uh, you know, your friends and family are like, um, in some ways, they're like, <laughs> you feel disappointed at some point because have you met the president? Have you met the president? All this kind of stuff. I, was Is that is that pretty intentional telling the story that way? I mean, inviting people to I mean, as I read it, it seemed like an invitation for people to um, feel free to struggle and to fail and to not live up to uh, expectations of their own or perceived expectations of peers or family. I think that's definitely a part of it. I mean, to me, um, so Peggy Noonan, the former Reagan speechwriter, she's a Wall Street Journal columnist now. She wrote a, uh, I think a really, one of, one of the best, if not the best uh, memoir from a White House speechwriter called What I Saw at the Revolution. And she once said that, uh, I think it's her, said every White House book should be subtitled. They should have listened to me. And I wanted to write a White House book that was about how uh, nobody really asked my opinion on important things because they shouldn't have. And if they should have, it would have been a mistake. Um, you know, that I was not uh, somebody who kind of knew everything or even knew most things. I was figuring it out just like most people are when they're in their 20s and in their first big job out of college. And I I did write th this in part so that people could, or with the hope that somebody who's 22 or 24 and is in their first job, wherever it is, feels a little bit more okay about the fact that it's always scary. If you're doing something you care about you, and you put a lot of pressure on yourself and you feel responsibility, you're always wondering if you're going to let yourself down and let other people down. And it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. So I think that's the point. It's not just that it's okay to kind of uh, disappoint, which is somewhat true, but more that everybody, every triumph has this sort of uh, set of disappointments along the way or embarrassments. And some of it's just being able to enjoy that. I mean, that's the other piece of it, too, that for me, these were fun. These were the stories that I would tell at, you know, to friends or whatever. And these are the stories that they would actually really like. I mean, if I told a story about a speech that went pretty well, people would be like, OK, that sounds cool. But if I, you know, the telling a story about the time I had to sing the Golden Girls theme song to the president of the United States. I mean, that's a moment when people said, oh, my gosh, that's really funny. And so I was like, OK, I want to share those stories. 
Yeah, you, you, I remember hearing you, I think, tell tell that part of the book on the moth. And mm-hmm. you, you say, I, I realized at this moment when, when right, I mean, you, you're you doing this video for, the president's doing this video for Betty White, and, 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 and he, he suggested, I thought it was funny, he suggested, should I bob my head to the music? And no one knew the Golden Girls theme. And you're, you're like, at that moment, I knew what I could do for my country. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, and, and it's those sort of small, you know, it's, in in the book, the way that I thought about that moment was it was not um, uh, one of the most important things that President Obama did or certainly that, um, you know, that uh, the White House did. But it, it was thinking about these sort of small triumphs. What are the moments when uh, things are a little bit better because I'm here? And I think for a lot of us, that's the point of a job, you know, or uh, the point of doing a job we care about. You you generally read about the people whose decisions affect everything. And you should. Those are important stories. But I also think there's behind that is a lot of people whose decisions affect maybe one small thing in one small way. And I think that's worth doing. I, I, I'm proud of being part of that. And I worked with a lot of great people who were a part of that. So that to me, that feels good. It doesn't feel um, uh, sort of what's the right word. Um, it, it seems like it's it's a part of the story that I wanted to be able to tell. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something? For me. Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham. Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Buchan, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, and Charlotte Donlan. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Right now, there's, you know, a struggle in the Democratic Party trying to figure out, you know, if it's going to be the sort of, say, center left, neoliberal kind of party or if it's going to be, you know, further left sort of where Bernie Sanders was. It seems to me that Trump and the Republican Party, there's a lot of comedic material there, right? And there seems to be a lot of comedic material on the left, like the Bernie Sanders sort of stuff. You know, I don't even have, I don't have a super pack. I don't even have a backpack. But then is neoliberalism like bad for, for comedic material? Because it's so centrist and reason. I mean, we're not socialists. We're for capitalism within the rules and we're for this. I mean, is that a tougher policy place to for comedic material just because it's 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 kind of not edgy. <laughs> it's very reasonable. 
Um, I guess it depends. I think a lot of it is, you know, a lot of comedy is sort of thinking about the thing and then trying to exaggerate it. Um, so in some ways, the challenge, let's say with Trump, is that he's so exaggerated to begin with that comedians are thinking, well, how do we how do we add on that? Right. The sort of like comedy jargon is um, if it's too much is you're kind of putting a hat on a hat. But like Trump's already got six hats on. So how do you put a hat on that? And um, so I, I don't know that it's so much the politics of it. I do think that there is. Um, there, you know, and I mean, your your uh, Bernie impression maybe evidences that some of it's just what who the characters are. I mean, you know, where he has a very distinctive way of talking, he has a distinctive voice. I think, by the way, as did um, as did Obama when he was running for president. So I think there's um, there's always room for a comedy in there somewhere. But I think right now, what is the biggest problem for comedy is and is the same problem that's happening in straight news. Trump is just dominating everything. And, you know, it's this train wreck that we sort of not only can we not look away from, it's kind of we're part of the train wreck, whether we want it to be or not. And so it makes sense that we're focused on it. But it also means there's not a lot of room for like, you know, sort of subtle, nuanced comedy on subtle, nuanced policy. That's not going to happen for a little while. The portrait you paint of the president is is an incredibly sympathetic one. And he's comes across as very human and, and a very funny guy, like a fun and funny guy. You wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times about Trump's inability to be funny. <laughs> I mean, what, so why why do you think Trump doesn't have what it takes to 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 be funny? Well, the strangest thing about Trump is not so much that he isn't funny, because I, I think that is subjective, right? Like, I think that he's in as much as he's funny, it's sort of the way that a bully is funny. Like he's the kid on the beach who like smashes another kid's sandcastle and then is like, well, I was joking. You're like, that's not really joking. You're just being a bad person. Um, and that's and and when you're a kid, you know, that's like a learning experience. When you're the president, it's a real problem. Um, the thing about Trump that really is just startling to me, and I've heard it from other people, especially people who've been in comedy, is uh, he just doesn't laugh. Um it's a very strange thing. He, he seems almost incapable of it. And that's um, I mean, that's just such a bizarre character trait. I mean, there's, it's not like some people are easy laughs and some people are hard laughs. You know, that's one thing. But Trump just doesn't laugh ever. And the, the since I wrote that, I mentioned one time in the op ed, someone compared Hillary to a dog. And he laughed at that. And then also there's that picture of him laughing with the Russians in the Oval Office. And those are the two I can think of, which is pretty remarkable that like and and to me, if you had a, like, you know, just somebody who was responsible for something in your life, if you had an accountant and your accountant like just was couldn't laugh no matter what, you would notice it. You'd be like, I don't know if I totally feel comfortable with this accountant, but like this is the president and it's pretty scary. Um, I, and I don't think it's it's that. I don't think it's that we need a president who can laugh. I think it's all the things that laughter signifies. Um, you know, for President Obama, there was this ability to uh, talk to a crowd, even with people who didn't vote for him. And partly he could make a joke about sports or the weather or whatever. And there's a little common ground that opens up. And that doesn't happen with Trump. I think that that inability to laugh is is part of a bigger inability to empathize. Yeah, Alec Baldwin says he's this guy that, you feel bad. He's always looking for the power word and can't find it. Our cabinet is so really terrific. I mean, they're so great. And he's like looking for that. Like, it's like, mm. hey, have you ever heard of the thesaurus? Like, here it is. You can look up fantastic. And there's all these other words. I mean, <laughs> that's an interesting theory. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that. 
when you like you're doing the rounds right and you've been all over the place on venues even bigger than this podcast if it's even a manual but uh, <laughs> is there pressure like oh here's the funny guy i gotta be funny like i'm the comedic speech writer. I mean, do, you, do you ever feel pressure like uh, do you have to live up to you know sort of your own byline as a as a because you're working for funny or die now right i mean is, is there pressure to be a funny guy no i mean i think if i was incredibly like dour and serious all the time that would probably be weird but that's also not exactly who i am i'm sort of always doesn't matter the job that i've had i've kind of either been the most like i've been the the funny serious person or the serious funny person and i think the book more or less reflects that as well so i think people are not surprised that i'm like mostly a serious person who sometimes has a sense of humor seems to work out and um so I, 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 thankfully, I don't think I've been anywhere yet where someone's like, okay, tell me a joke, you know, or like write, write a joke on the spot. Because I do think that uh, comedians and speechwriters probably get the same sense of um, part of the benefit of the job is that everyone can imagine it. Uh, you know, if I was a quantum physicist, people would be like, I have no idea what you do. But um, as a speechwriter, as a comedy writer, people think, oh, I've, I've told jokes. I've heard speeches. I know what that's like. Um, and then, of course, the downfall or the downside is that everyone then sort of feels like very comfortable criticizing your work, <laughs> you know, where, where every, everyone who's in comedy, I know not like me, but like everyone who's an actual stand-up comedian, you know, they have whatever an uncle who's like, that's pretty good, but here's a good joke. And, um, it, it is definitely true that if you're a speechwriter for the president, you go home and you hear a lot of, uh, political punditry, um, from your family and friends. Howard Stern, I was interviewing Jerry Seinfeld and Jerry Seinfeld said that he thinks writing stand writing material, comedic material is the hardest thing in show business because it's not just brilliant. There's no use for it. And he said they were socializing one night and he was talking about a bit that he couldn't quite finish. And Howard said he wrote an email that night trying to finish for him. And Jerry said, and he said, I decided not to. And he's like, Howard, you made the right decision. <laughs> I mean, because that is, I mean, is the, mon the Monday morning quarterbacking has got to be uh, ir mildly irritating. <laughs> it is. I mean, I, I think it also comes with the territory where, like, if you write for a president, on one hand, people feel that they can complain to you about the president and it's going to somehow reach him, which it wouldn't, you know, like, like some like this idea that, like, if I tell you what's wrong with Obamacare, like, you'll go, you know walk into the oval and be like, Mr. President, you won't believe what my second cousin told me. Um, <laughs> and like, I'm not, I wasn't going to do that. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to do that even if I wanted to. But, um, you know, the flip side of it is it means that you're working someplace and you're part of something where people are noticing it. So I, I think it's a totally fair trade-off. Um, it can be frustrating in the moment, but in the same way that like, uh, you know, if you're Jerry Seinfeld and people are constantly trying to help you fix your your bits that's because you're jerry seinfeld people actually care so i i imagine that um while he may be appreciated not getting that email i think he also appreciates being in a place where people are like okay you know where everyone's heard one of your jokes so i can i have i have thoughts about this yeah i mean he actually said to howard he said you know well if i if 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 i could have used it i i would is i would have tried to sell it like you know even though it's probably would would bomb but uh, just to show you how hard it is yeah <laughs> Well, I do think um, comedy writing, you know, it, it, in the speech writing world, it's certainly there's different types of speeches. And I wouldn't say comedy writing is the hardest, but I would say in certain ways it has to be the most precise um, for the same reason that you were talking about. That if a, an applause line in a speech is improperly worded, it maybe gets 80 percent as much applause. 
But if an applaud, if a if a laugh line, if a punchline in a joke is improperly worded, it gets a hundred percent less laughter. It's just it's a binary system in a lot of ways. So I do think that that's a real challenge for um, for joke writing, and it's also part of what makes it exciting and fun. And I will say it made writing for this president particularly. Uh, it was just a, a better experience than it might have otherwise been because he understood that about both writing in general, but also about joke writing. So when he would make edits, they generally would be very precise and very smart in that way. And, um, you know, he, he'd make us look better than we were, which is always something you appreciate as a speechwriter. I'm reading this book right now by a guy named Todd McGowan called Only a Joke Can Save Us, A Theory of Comedy. And he teaches, I think, at the University of Vermont. So he says this stuff. I wanted to ask you about this. He says the experience of comedy doesn't provoke reflection. This contrasts it directly with other extreme experiences. And he talks about like how love, reflecting on the experience of, of falling in love, um, can actually deepen the experience or, um, you know, an experience of, of death, like seeing, you know, being aware of someone past can make you reflect on your own finitude. He says that part of the enjoyment of comedy, however, involves giving oneself over to the immediacy of the experience. While reflection on tragedy or love can intensify these experiences, it dissolves the comic moment and transports us to another plane of experience. Do you think, does that ring true to you as, as, as a comedic writer, like speechwriter? I mean, is, 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 is it hard to think about your craft because of the nature mm. of that? of what he says there no i mean i overthink everything so (laughs) this wasn't hard to overthink um i think that it is definitely true that that thinking about and writing about comedy tends to be pretty boring like no question the hardest parts of my book to write not in terms of like emotionally but in terms of making them engaging we're talking about the joke writing process because it's just so not funny and what are you going to do about that there's nothing you can do to make writing about writing jokes funny. Sometimes there were moments when, you know, I'd pitch something to the president and he would reject it in a funny way or something like that, but that's not really about the joke writing. That's, you know. Um, I do think that, it, for me, in my book, I got around it mostly by writing about other stuff. So the the Correspondence Center is an important part, but it's not the only part of the book. Um, I also think, generally speaking, if you talk to comedy people about craft, most of them think a lot about the craft, but it's an, an understanding that there's um, that, that that only gets you so far that you can learn the rules. But then also some people are just really funny and some people have an instinct and some people not as much. And and also that instincts are things that can be honed and th- those are harder to explain. So I think it's closer to like watching someone play sports. Um, and I say this as someone who's not great at sports, but, uh, you know, it, um, I think Malcolm Gladwell talks about this, right? That like there's a certain height uh, beyond like you need to be at to be good at basketball. And then you also need to be good at basketball. Um, and I, that's certainly like for me, you know, I'm five foot five. There is no way, even if I was good at basketball, I would be good at basketball. I happen to not be, uh, have any talent for it whatsoever either. But I think that that is the kind of like um, thinking about the comedy world. Some of it is kind of the equivalent of shooting free throws over and over and just getting those reps. And some of it is hoping that you have the sort of like temperament where this is a thing that you should be doing. Did not being good at sports push you into comedy? Because I think when you're like an adolescent guy, there's two ways you can like conquer the social scene. You could be the athletic kind of popular guy or the funny guy. (laughs) No. So actually in high school, I wasn't great at sports in high school, but I was perfectly decent. Like I, I was a wrestler in high school. And, um, and I played ultimate Frisbee, uh, 
briefly on a team. I, I think I went to the kind of high school where I was actually pretty lucky where it wasn't like, you know, it, it didn't have the sort of like a breakfast club um, division of, of labor of like, here's the jock, here's the funny guy. So people got to cross over a little bit. Um, I don't, I think the reason that I started doing comedy was because it was like the one thing my parents could not imagine me doing. Like it was a very s- gentle um, way of rebelling that didn't involve like seriously bad life choices, but it was still something that I think to this day probably leaves my parents like not unhappy, but a little confused. They're supportive, but like, you know, there's the moment when you say like, hey, mom and dad, I uh, used to work at the White House that you've heard of, and now I'm going to work for this comedy website called Funny or Die, um, and having to explain that to them. Like, I think there is that sense of kind of uh, paving your own, you know, paving your own way that by definition happens with that. Mark Twain says that, said says i mean he said it but yeah, well yeah when did he say yeah, exactly right says yeah right uh mark twain said that it, in heaven there will be laughter but no humor and, and what he meant by that is that humor like you don't need uh incongruity or tragedy or pain to have laughter mm. like somebody could tickle you or you know or you could see a cute like cat or something but real humor takes requires the dark side i mean it, do you think it's is someone who is in comedy, do, do you have to have a better sense for or tolerance of pain and tragedy to do that kind of art? Um, I think it depends on the kind of comedy you're doing. Uh, so I think some comedians that I really admire certainly do have a, a sense of tragedy, like you're saying, and that's where their comedy comes from. I don't think when I was writing jokes for the president, it was necessarily like, what's the tragedy here? I think for maybe more like, what's the truth? You know, an eye for absurdity. Um, cause I think that was important and, and is really important for most people that, that I know. And I say this as somebody who sort of has one foot in comedy and one foot in politics. I don't consider myself like a comedy writer in the way that my friends who have spent 10 years writing comedy are comedy writers. Um, but observing them, I think there's that instinct for truth. You know, you're always constantly trying to figure out like, what are we seeing? And then what is it really meaning? And where's the disconnect between those two things? Um, and trying to figure out what's what is where's the humor in that. So I do think that that sort of sense of absurdity really is um, valuable. I don't know that there's necessarily that sense of tragedy, um, but this is this goes back to your earlier question. I mean, like we could talk about this for a long time, but then if if we like sat down and wrote some jokes, I don't know how much of it we wouldn't be like sitting down and saying, "All right, let's think about absurdity." <laughs> But but in a way, we would be doing that, I suppose. We just wouldn't. But if, if we thought about it, it wouldn't work, you know. So um, so I think that is the tricky thing about comedy writing for anybody, whether it's for yourself, for a president of the United States. There, You do want to think about craft. And, and that writing in general is like this. You want to think about craft. But if you're only thinking about craft, then you're going to get stuck in your own head. I remember in the West Wing, there's this episode where they're asking Sam about details of his speech, Sam Seaborn. And he says something like, it's the code, man, the speech. Or we don't, we don't tell what joke we wrote or we don't tell. I, I mean, is that, is something like that code exists? And is it, is it strange when everybody knows that the orator didn't write that speech? I mean, she probably made edits and things like that. Is that a weird, surreal like experience when, that you're giving somebody their, their words, they're reading other people's words and yet making it their own? I mean, that seems like a kind of, especially when everyone knows it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think made writing for President Obama less weird in that respect was that, um, he, I mean, everyone knows he's a good writer and a very good writer. He wrote 
you know, his first book, and it was a fantastic book. This was before he was in politics. Um, he's also, as everyone knows, a very good speaker, and that's an understatement as well. And so everything that he said as president was rooted in his own words. Um, you know, it wasn't necessarily that he was sitting down saying, how do I, you know, write this turkey pardon speech or whatever, because he had other things to do. And that's that's how I think about speech writing is that it's not about putting words in someone's mouth um, or shouldn't be. I think with this current president, it might be a little bit, but <laughs> all other all other presidents, I think it's about saving somebody time. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There used to be uh, about 40 years ago, it, we were still living in a world where politicians would pretend they wrote everything that they spoke themselves. Like I forget, I think it was um, uh, Senator Muskie from Maine, but I forget. But there's some story about a, a principal, a speaker who would take out a sheaf of remarks, say, here's the speech my speechwriters wrote for me, rip it up dramatically and say, I'm not going with that, and then deliver the exact same speech from memory. <laughs> and um, so I think that that idea was important. And then I think over time, it became less important. And I think, you know, some of it is kind of a matter of careful thinking, right? While we were at the White House, um, you know, the day after a correspondence center, we were very careful to make the story Make sure that it was not about like who wrote which joke, um, you know, after now that we've left, I sort of feel, felt comfortable, obviously, uh, talking a little bit more about that behind the scenes process, because it seems like, um, you know, it, enough time has passed that it's not stepping on a news cycle that we were excited about. Um, you know, and I think that's been borne out pretty well. Um, and um, so I'm not too worried about it. I do think it's funny, like the partly because of Sam Seaborn, Rob Lowe's character in The West Wing, and partly because of President Obama's talent as a speaker, and because my former boss John Favreau, um, you know, was writing speeches on the campaign, and uh, and they were so amazing. Um, I think there is an interest in speechwriting there didn't used to be, and an understanding that speechwriters exist that didn't it used to be there. You said that you don't imagine you'll work in the White House again. Would it? Why is? I mean, would it take? a candidate that moved you that much to get you back in the game or is it just say hey, i had my fill of it i mean is it if you found someone that you found as inspiring would you would you go back you, you talk about you know going in the midwest I mean, you probably wouldn't be like a young staffer like that but would you you know doing the motel rooms in iowa but would you would you go back in the game if you found someone that really stoked your passions um yeah it's it's not so much that i wouldn't work in the white house again because i'm like oh whatever been there done that what i'm saying is just a hard job to get um, you know, a lot of luck is involved in getting a White House job, even if you're, um, you know, very driven and you hope that you have, you know, some level of talent. It's just ending up there is unlikely. Um, so for me, I mean, I don't think I would go back into full time speech writing just because I think I had the best speech writing job anyone's going to have for a generation. And so <laughs> I, I don't want to do that again. Um but feel like it's less exciting. Um, you know, I, I absolutely still care about it sounds weird to say, but like I care about America. Good place. Uh, you know, it's it's the country I'm, I'm part of and I care about it and I love it. And I think it's in some trouble. So thinking about what I can do and, you know, to sort of help fix the mess, I think that's an important thing to think about. I think it's important for everyone to think about. So I don't know what form that will take, but I think it's unlikely that it's going to mean me sort of jumping in as a full time speechwriter somewhere. You never know. I know you've got it right. I just had one more question for you. As a speechwriter, and one that's written jokes. Are, are wedding toasts really tough for you? <laughs> are you thinking, are wedding I could toasts really tough? Yeah, I, I could just I give me five article, minutes. I, I, could, I wrote I an could, article for Cosmo about how to, how to uh, 
do a, a really good wedding toast. This was last year. Um, and I forget exactly what I advised, but I'm sure it was very useful. Um, no, I think wedding toasts are, I don't know. I feel like you get asked to do other people's wedding toasts a lot. You know what I mean? Like people ask you for help on theirs. And I think that generally speaking, um, they're, they're hard, but oddly, they're actually really easy to do pretty well, which is like, don't do anything embarrassing and don't go on too long. And that's a generally good rule for speech writing. But it, it is true that when you're speaking, you're like, I want this to be amazing. But as an audience member, what you mostly want is for it not to be a disaster. And then if it's good on top of that, so much, you know, that's terrific. But, uh, you know, giving a wedding toast, that that's the, the same general advice that you would give to any speaker, which is like, first, just make sure it's solid and it's not too long. And then from there, it works out. And should it like is the mistake like looking back to when people like sometimes I hear them and they're almost like um, eulogies for what we had or now, you know, your our single friendship and all that stuff, like as opposed to making it about the union of the couple and move in looking yeah. forward. Well, it, generally speaking, if you're giving a speech and it's all about yourself, especially if it's someone, so, at someone else's wedding, that's not a good sign. Like you should do something different than that. So I do think that's um, that's true is like. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm remembering this article I wrote. I do think that was one of the things I talked about. It's like y you want to stay sort of specific, but also to, to you say something only you can say, but broaden it out. So you're talking about the couple. So that's my that's my parting piece of advice uh, for for those giving wedding toasts. David, thank you so much for spending time talking with me and best of luck with Funny or Die DC. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to David for coming on the podcast. Check out his memoir, Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. It's a great read. And thank you again for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, my friends, fare thee well.